but an Apple Watch is cool. It looks great. Yep. And people don't think about it being a device for older adults. Meanwhile, as you know, certainly from the book, um, men over 65 purchase more Apple products than any other cohort on average. So by definition, Apple is an older adult product line. Yeah. Shocking. Older people like to buy cool things too. That doesn't yeah. really magically go away at some point. Welcome to Longevity Gains, the show that reveals the near limitless opportunities for digital marketers and entrepreneurs in the longevity economy. We're talking about the people aged 50 and over who already account for more than half of consumer spending in the U.S. and 83% of household wealth, which will only increase in the years to come. It's the $22 trillion opportunity you can't afford to ignore. We are back with another episode of the Longevity Gains podcast. I'm your host, Jared Morris, the Chief Community Officer at Movement Ventures, and I am happy to be here again with my co-host, Longevity Gains founder, serial entrepreneur, and content marketing pioneer, Brian Clark. And Brian, before we introduce our highly esteemed guest for this week, I just have to ask you a very important sports question since you live in Boulder, Colorado, and your son is now attending Colorado University like both of my parents did, by the way. Uh, and here is the question. Do you believe? That's right, Brian. Do you believe? <laughs> do you believe in Coach Prime and the Buffaloes, Brian? <laughs> I believe for the first time ever that I will put up with Dion if he keeps this up. Because, you know, I've never been a huge fan of Dion. My dad is a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. Not a fan of Dion. He's a little too flashy <laughs> for us. Uh, but again, I'm willing to set aside all of that. Uh, and I got to admit, you, you know, from the moment he gave that first speech when he was named head coach and came in and told everyone we're coming, it was uh, he's quite the motivator, man. He, he can get you revved up and it's working with those kids. And uh, I'm excited. Yeah. His first year as coach, my son's first year as a student, perfect timing. And uh, we'll see what happens. Looking forward to the Nebraska game. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I think there's actually a relevant marketing lesson in what Dion is doing in rebuilding this moribund program. I mean, Colorado has not been anything in football for a long time. And I think the genius of Dion is he knows who his audience is and he speaks their language, right? His audience is not the media. That's not who it is. And so, you know, even if his kind of do you believe statement to you know, the reporter makes no sense. It's serving his larger purpose of, you know, kind of developing this us against the world mentality with his players. But his audience is high school recruits and potential transfers. And he is speaking their language, making Colorado a cool place. And so when someone like my mom, who hops online to look for shirts, and she's like, I can't buy a shirt that says we coming. I just can't do it. <laughs> so, well, you're <laughs> yeah, not the audience for that phrase, you know, and his team is. And that's kind of Dion's thing. It's, you know, to me, it's funny because I kind of see him using all the elements of the movement strategy framework to kind of create this movement. He's got a mission he believes in. He understands his tribe. He's positioning himself in the program and creating unity uh, among his team in this short period of time. And that's a big part of the reason why they were successful. Um, so it's just, it's been interesting to watch and we'll see if they can keep it up. 
Oh yeah, it's definitely an exercise in both uh, great marketing and a movement which we maintain are closer together than uh, bad marketing is to nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's how it works. You gotta, you know, you gotta get people acting together for a unified goal and uh, taking action. And that's what it's all about. So yeah, very exciting. And I love that you pulled out a marketing lesson there. (laughs) Absolutely. That's right. That's how I justify my time watching sports, you know. Yeah, have to to, to do it somehow. (laughs) Um, All right. So we've got a really interesting guest this week. I'm going to do our kind of official intro for him here in just a minute. Um, But why don't you give us just a little bit of kind of overview and context for why uh, we are talking with this gentleman uh, this week? Yeah. So Bradley Sherman wrote the the Super Age. Um, If you've grabbed our free uh, Longevity Economy Fundamentals ebook, You'll see him cited there along with some other people like Joseph Coughlin from MIT, Susan Golden from Stanford. But yeah, his book uh, was really well done. Uh, You know, he's kind of positioned himself as a demographic futurist and, uh, you know, basically specializing, betting his career on what he calls the super age, which is the changing shift to a much older population due to longer lifespans and health spans and lower birth rates that that we've been talking about quite a bit here and uh he he's very very astute about the why how did we get here and and what do we have to do to make this a positive thing instead of a calamity <laughs> because he is probably the most um, even keeled about, you know, this is the demographics or destiny. This is happening, but what it looks like is up to us and the actions that we take now, not just as marketers, but as activists and, and the role of government and what have you, it's that big a deal. And, uh, like I said earlier, you know, I'm not usually the optimistic one, but, uh, you'll hear that I, I do tend to think that we can, we can remake things in, in a more positive way because we kind of have to, I mean, that's really the message here. So, uh, yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be a great conversation. Absolutely. All right. So stay tuned. Here's our conversation with Bradley Sherman. Let us introduce this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the author of The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny, one of the most influential books ever written about the demographic changes that are already disrupting modern society. He is the founder and CEO of an inclusive design firm by the same name. He's written for Newsweek, been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, and spent two decades working for organizations that serve older adults. And he's very proud of his Pittsburgh roots. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Bradley Sherman to the show. Bradley, welcome to Longevity Gains. It's great to have you here with us. And it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've spent basically your whole career working to improve the lives of older people. What took you down that path? My grandparents. Yeah. Um, Like most people who get into aging, 
as a field, whether it be long-term care, pensions, housing, there's typically some personal connection that pulls you in. And mine was my grandparents. Uh, They were the spark. When I was in college, they entered long-term care. They had done a good job of saving. uh, So they were well taken care of, at least I thought, but there were massive gaps in the continuity of their care, the quality of their care. And I thought, well, this needs to be fixed. And what I found out very quickly at exiting college and going into the nonprofit sector, working with long-term care communities is that these problems are deep embedded. At the same time, I found that there was this other really compelling thing happening um, called demographic change. Birth rates were collapsing in certain parts of the country, certainly worldwide in big markets, uh, most of the, the leading economies. And I just sunk my teeth into understanding, or at least attempting to understand why, and then what we could do about it. Um, not necessarily to turn birth rates around, but to make the most out of what we have. Mm. Which then leads into what you write about in your book, The Super Age, the super megatrend. Can you define what that super megatrend is just so everyone's on the same page? Yeah. So broadly, two things are happening here. The first is that birth rates have collapsed. In order for societies to maintain their populations, each woman needs to have, on average, 2.1 children. Okay? That keeps the population stable. The United States uh, birth rate is now down to about 1.7 babies per woman. So without immigration, the United States would start to shrink. Um, At the same time, the population is getting older. And what I mean by that is that average life expectancy has more than doubled uh, since the 19th century. Um, This is a significant human achievement, but these two intersecting trends, um, trends rather, are pushing us into this era called super age, where at least one out of five people will be over the age of 65, something we've never experienced before. And that's going to happen by the end of this decade. And just a few years later, in 2034, by best estimates, there'll be more older adults than children in this country. And that's going to have profound impacts. It's already impacting social norms, economic norms. It's it's certainly influencing politics in this nation. And what makes it really fascinating is that it's not just an American phenomenon. It's happening everywhere in the world. In fact, uh, you know, a country like Japan, which is the first super-aged country, they've been losing population now since 2014. They've lost 3.1 million people. And that really comes into uh, a lot of different parts about how a country uh, survives. Um, Do they focus on that growth piece, which has been central to our ethos for so long? Or do countries have to transition into a degrowth mentality, meaning that GDP is not the only thing that we focus on? So Bradley, I want to commend you on your great reasons for entering the field of work that you did. I got into this 
just by dealing with my own issues at midlife, like, why aren't I happy, you know, and, and what's going on here? And, you know, U-shaped happiness curve and things get better after 50. And I'm like, okay, this is good news. And then it kind of snowballed from there. I read The Longevity Economy. Uh, and then I read your book. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't understand. I mean, we've known that this demographic shift is coming for decades. Why don't more people understand what's happening? You know, I think it's a lot like the frog in the in the pot, if you know that analogy. You know, in this country, our demographic shift has been happening since the revolution. Um, the first revolution uh, in 1776 uh, was around the time of the first industrial revolution. Um, and that's when demographics started to turn around as people moved from the fields to cities, as we relied on machines more to do work, agrarian life changed, urban life became more normalized, family structures started to change. Um, it's been a slow and steady process here in this country. And I think we were largely blinded by the baby boom. Um, in 1946, the baby boom from 46 to 64 really threw us off because we had been declining for some time up until then. And then all of a sudden, boom, all of these babies, 76 million of them, there was a correction during Gen X and then another bump with the millennials, 42 million. But guess what? Gen Z is down to 69 million again. And by all trending, everything that we can possibly look at um, Gen Alpha, um, those preteens, they're going to be a smaller generation than Gen Z. So we're in a period of decline as it relates to native-born, American-born populations. But the country will continue to grow. And America will continue to grow largely because of immigration. But that's the primary reason we'll continue to expand. You know, Brian, you mentioned, you know, what's it kind of going to take for people to understand this is happening? But I mean, what do you think it'll take, Bradley? Obviously, just, you know, on the day that we're recording this, you know, uh, yesterday, I think, you know, the New York Times, you know, had a, you know, great spread that, you know, kind of talked about this issue. What do you, what do you think it'll take to kind of bring this to the forefront of more people's attention? I certainly think that we're at or approaching a tipping point where people can no longer deny the reality. Central to my thinking is that economics tends to drive us um, because so much of our value is placed in our jobs. Um, so much of our behaviors are based around consumerism that when the economy feels a pressure, we all feel it. And the economy is feeling a true demographic pressure right now. During the COVID years, you know, about 3 million people left the uh, labor force that weren't supposed to go uh, earlier than they were supposed to leave. These were the boomers predominantly, of course, some of the silent generation too. And what this did is we put such a unique pressure on the labor force that, and there were so few Gen Z to fill the slots that all of a sudden we have really low unemployment. We had this thing called quiet quitting that emerged seemingly out of nowhere, people dissatisfied with their jobs. We see inflation coming partially as a result from increasing wages because employers have to compete for labor like they haven't had to in the past. And 
we see um, really a new reckoning when it comes to the labor movement, um, whether it's Starbucks or Walmart, uh, the auto workers who might strike this week, I think, tomorrow or next week. Um, we're seeing a resurgence of really significant action within the labor market. And I think people are waking up to it and they're saying, why is this happening? Why is this happening? We should have all this labor. Well, we don't. The kids aren't there. So in order to continue to expand our labor pool, we really only have three options at our hands that are people options. Uh, the first is that we lower the eligibility age for employment. And some states have done that. Uh, Arkansas, Iowa have lowered eligibility for employment down to 14. That's kind of weird, but they're more agrarian. So we'll give them a little bit of a pass on that. We can open up the doors to immigration, which we all know is a highly toxic subject these days, certainly in this country. And then the third option is we say, well, wait a second, 65 is really an arbitrary number for people to stop working. What can we do to keep them in the workforce for longer periods of time? We have about 69 million boomers today. A good percentage of those people can be working. They have the physical and mental aptitude to work. They're choosing not to. They're choosing to retire or they're being forced into redundancy. That is a huge pool of labor that we can tap into if we could just get past our bias that 65 was somehow this stopping line rather than a new starting line for work. Yeah, you know, and that brings up something interesting. Brian, I want to pose this question to you first, and then Bradley, get your thoughts on it too. You know, Brian, you've said a lot that, you know, marketers kind of created the current climate of ageism, this retirement myth, you know, which Bradley kind of alluded to right there, and that it's marketers that are going to get us out of it. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, this is really where I think uh, I have Bradley the most to thank for giving me the why. Like you, you hear about, okay, the population's getting older, birth rates are dropping. Uh, this is the largest consumer block that we're going to have, you know, starting now and going into the future. But I'm like, how did we get here? And Bradley did a great job of taking us back to the 1940s, a time when adolescence effectively didn't exist, right? You were a child and then you were an adult. You know, there was not this extended in-between period. And uh, then talk about Eugene Gilbert, who created the first um, marketing research firm that was aimed specifically at teenagers. Helen Valentine founded uh, 17 Magazine, the first magazine for teenage girls. This all happened in 1945 or thereabouts, right when the baby boomers were born. And why did it happen? Why was this the beginning of youth culture? Well, it was the last, and, and Bradley can correct me on this, but the baby boom was the most significant demographic shift we faced until now. And there was all this money to be made and, and marketers like they do said, okay, we're, we got to get this money, you know, and that's the beginning of rock and roll. And, you know, Chuck Berry is now singing to teenagers and about teenagers. And the message effectively became the most simplistic tribal thing you can do. Old people suck, young people rule. And that's what the baby boomers were brought up with. This very, they were empowered as young people in ways that they hadn't been before, uh, to the denigration of the 
you know, of the older people, Roger Daltrey. I hope I die before I get old. Well, he didn't. How does he feel now? Well, he's rich. He doesn't care. But, <laughs> but, um, but how did the rest of the baby boomers feel from being heaped with attention all their entire lives? And then they cross this threshold where all of a sudden, despite the fact that they're sitting on 83% of all household wealth and they're not really catered to, they don't see themselves in advertising and marketing. Then there's the whole retirement thing. So Social Security basically created this fiction of retirement at 65 in 1935 when it was a real deal. You know, we were a blue collar labor force and uh, we needed to take care of the people who actually made it to 65, which the government knew was not very many people, right? And it was also uh, part of the reasoning behind Social Security was to get uh, older workers out of the labor force and make room for younger people. We had the opposite problem back then. But the funny thing was, among people who could keep working, they didn't really take to retirement. Uh, it was a very different culture in that, why would I want to do nothing when what makes me feel valuable is what I contribute, right? That was the mentality in the 50s. Um, so towards the end of the 50s, you get, again, marketers are like, these people are flush with corporate pensions. They have all this money. We need to create this golden years concept so that they will retire and give their money to people like Dell Webb and other organizations, uh, you know, basically supported by uh, AARP. And I think it was Bradley who said something in his book that prompted me to relabel that the American Association of Rich People, because that's what retirement is these days, at least when you think of it in terms of golden years. Everyone else is either not necessarily able to retire or they're going to have a substantial reduction in their in their quality of life. So, yeah, it's a, it's a retirement myth because as soon as we moved to 401ks, people stopped being flush with money at the same levels unless they were in the upper income brackets. So I want to hear a little bit more, if you will, Bradley, on you know older people working longer. We've already seen through the unretirement movement that people want to. When you get to Gen X... A lot of us don't have the money <laughs> to retire in the first place and have to keep working. Is this a positive thing or can it be spun in that direction, given that we've all grown up with this idea that you retire in your mid-60s in some blissful state? Yeah, the retirement concept is a myth, and it was a myth that was really thrust upon us in the middle century. Uh, and it's so problematic on so many levels. Um, I'm not sure we haven't even enough time today to talk about why it's so problematic on so many <laughs> levels. But the reality is you've highlighted the fact that there has been this shift in population. There are a lot more people than the founders of Social Security could have ever imagined living past retirement. They also would have never really anticipated that birth rates would have dropped to this point. 
So we have fewer people paying in and a lot more people living a lot longer than the actuaries would have believed. That being said, this means that we will have to some degree a return to the past. And the famous author Mark Twain often said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And when I do my work, particularly around strategic foresight, I take large amounts of data, overlay with emerging tastes, trends, technologies, and then take a look at historic examples. Well, when didn't we have a social safety net before? Obviously, it was pre-1935. What did the world look like before then? Well, the world looked very different. Um, if you were a man, you worked until you no longer could work, period. You lived within a multi-generational household that supported you in old age. There wasn't a state system in place per se, unless, of course, you were um, a surviving person of the that served in the military. There were those off uh, veterans' homes that existed around the country and the occasional home that was attached to a religious institution when people no longer had family to take care of them. But the prevailing trend for most of human history is you work until you can't, period. So even after the Second World War, um, when birth rates were up, we had all of these new children being born. Um, in 1950, one out of two men over the age of 65 was in the workforce. But by 1965, once this flush uh, group of young people, the boomers really started entering the workforce in mass, yeah, older people started leaving at the same time because they had this promise of a retirement. Um, also, it gave employers uh, an out. Um, these folks are expensive. It's time for them to go. And that happened naturally. By 1990, only one out of eight workers was over the age of 65. Only one out of eight. And I entered the workforce in the 90s. Um, most Gen X did. Well, that's already starting to turn around. Um, today, it's, I think, about one in five workers are over 60, uh, 65 now. That number is going to continue to grow over time. And we may return to a reality where, you know, people work well into their 70s and 80s. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because there are intrinsic benefits to staying engaged in work, including financial stability, but also physical, mental, and cognitive health. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something, you know, Brian mentioned some of the ways that, you know, businesses kind of changed who they were focusing on in the 40s when you had this demographic shift. And I think, you know, you've alluded to and, and talked about, you know, how, you know, internally it's going to change for businesses as more older people are working longer. And what is that going to be like? And how do those intergenerational teams, you know, get along? But I'm curious, what other ways do you think this will affect businesses and markets? You know, specifically how businesses are, you know, marketing and what products they choose to focus on as now, you know, so much more of the buying power is shifting to, you know, this aging population. Well, let's be clear. Pre pre nineteen Pre-post-war, let's call it that. Pre-post-war, marketers sold to one group of people, adults. 
it was the post-war period where we really started segmenting mm. uh, markets in a more effective way. You could make an argument that markets segmented between men and women before the war, but most purchasing power really stayed in the hands of men. That being said, post-war, you start seeing segmentation around the youth market and the retirement market. So then there are three primary markets that are, are being segmented at this time. Now we've got this whole new cohort of people that uh, have always been around, but they didn't quite have the market size until now. They're not retired, um, but they're adults. They're not quite middle-aged. They're somewhere in between. Uh, I call them the middle plus. Um, some other people have different names for them. I, I think because we haven't settled on something yet, no single organization has really fully sunk their teeth into them yet. No marketing organization has really attacked this group and said, yep, we're going to take the most out of it. And part of the reason why I believe is because this group of people are so diverse mm. and it's hard to count them as a single market because they have wide variation in their economic realities. They have wide variation in their social realities. Um, you've got singles, you've got dinks, double income, no kids. You've got uh, folks that are already grandparents, uh, some people living in multi-generational settings. So the realities of this group are kind of hard to sink your teeth into. Retirees were all retired. Youth were all youth. And they were kind of similar. This group is hyper diverse, hyper diverse, making it a lot harder to get to. So where I think the market will eventually go, and I think we're starting to see that now, is the creation of inclusive, inclusive products and services. And in fact, part of my business is inclusive design of the physical environment, commercial space, residential space. The reason I believe this is because when we can get the maximum number of people using a product, a device, a space, we can actually expand market share. And people can engage with that product or service or even the space the way they want to or the way they can. Now, there are going to be plenty of people that say, I'm designing for a 65-year-old male. Well, if you've seen one 65-year-old male, you've seen one 65-year-old male. When you say, I'm designing for a person with um, uh, multiple chronic diseases, uh, still actively working, you know, maybe has grandchildren, you start to get a much more uh, compelling picture of what your market actually looks like. So there is an emerging group of thinking. It started about five or six years ago around stage segmentation, understanding where people actually sit in their life versus simply assigning a chronological date to them. And that to me is the real sweet spot here is understanding stage among above everything else. I, I'll add this, you know, it is really hard to move Madison Avenue. It is really hard to move them. They have a history of pushing out older adults. Um, <laughs> I say older people over the age of 35, 40. That's when you start getting nudged out of Madison Avenue. Um, that being said, this bias that 18 to 34 is the core market for consumer goods remains. So 
what needs to happen in part is that businesses understand that there's a value add to reaching past that. Yes, build that Peloton bike, but think about the additional layers of people you can get if you market on different channels or if you're more inclusive in the way you present uh, the people who are using the product. Or if you're a company like Apple, you remove people from the equation altogether in some of the advertisements. That gets to more of what the product does versus who is using the product. And that aspirational marketing, you know, that idea of let's use faces, let's use people, you know, that's really kind of a um, a mid-century idea around the youth market. I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You know, this idea that one cohort of people looks like one thing, it doesn't quite fit anymore. We are hyper diverse and we are markets of one. Oh man, there's just so much in there that we could unpack. Um, number one, I'm sure you're a fan of Susan Golden's work, her book, Stage, Not Age. Um, I've also heard uh, inclusive design referred to as ageless design. Is that a synonymous term or is it something slightly different? Yeah, it's different. Um, yeah. Anytime somebody uses the term ageless, I cringe because that is removing a component of a person's lived experience. There's no such thing as ageless. Um, There are realities that we all face and inclusive design attempts to address those realities up front. We don't shy away from them. So Inclusive design not only looks at things like disability, um, you know, a quarter of America, at least a quarter of America lives with some form of disability today. And that number will likely grow in the future as a growing cohort of people get older. You can't disassociate fully age from disability. There's also realities that people face during their lifetimes. Um, If you've had children, you know that that part of your life was very different. You required different things to get around, to navigate the space of a place. For women, um, you know, in their 40s and 50s, experiencing perimenopausal symptoms, entering menopause, that changes the way you engage with the space. So inclusive design, its attempt is to say, How do we take all of this lived experience from as many diverse groups as possible and plug it in, uh, in an effective way? How do we make space in particular more usable by more people, but not just usable, um, uh, not just accessible, enjoyable? Um, Really, that's the core, core thing that we're going for here at the end of the day is really making space usable and enjoyable. So one of the more fascinating counterintuitive things that you touched on is the use of faces, especially in brand advertising, to represent who the target audience is and how fraught with danger that is with older people, Uh, partly, I guess, because of subjective age. Like, I still feel maybe 40 tops. I'm 56. (laughs) Uh, If you show me someone in their late 50s other than Brad Pitt, I'm like, no, <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's interesting. It's almost like the idea, as you mentioned, that people want to be represented and see someone who looks like them on screen is a 
is a standard of inclusivity. And yet with older people, they're like, no, that's not me. You're not talking to me. So what do we do? And, and I like that Apple doesn't show faces. I, Apple has always been so savvy about really talking to values and attitudes more than your typical demographic identity marketing. Yeah, you know, when we hit 40, we tend to think of ourselves as about 20% younger than we actually are. The the data backs it. So, you know, if you're marketing to a 40-year-old and you put a 40-year-old in a commercial, they might reject that. Mm -hmm. They might see they might resonate more with a 30-something um than a 40-something. And of course, there's a multiplier effect the the higher you go up in age. It is a real challenge for marketers because for a long period of time, anti-ageism activists in particular have been calling for greater representation, include older people in advertisements, include older people in films. The only way you really get to that in a way that, that I think really sticks is if there's an authenticity to it. If the person's exhibiting a lived experience that resonates with, with yours. Um, you know, my mother is 72 years old. Not sure she'd love me sharing that, but she's 72 <laughs> years old and she's actually really enjoyed the, the recent films, um, uh, by Lily Tomlin and, um, um Jane Fonda, Jane right? Fonda. Yes. Yeah. And you know, they're, 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 they're about 10 to 20 years older than her. Mm -hmm. She likes the films though, because those the lived experience of those two individuals resonates with her because that's kind of the way she's living right now. She's still active. She's still traveling. She's still doing great stuff. She's still working. Um, so it isn't a perfect equation. It isn't a perfect match just to say, oh, well, you know, knock off 20% of years and you'll get to it. There still needs to be something authentic to the show, the the movie, the advertisement that resonates with people, which gets to where the evolution of product is coming and certainly how product is marketed is that more and more will have to be about the efficacy of the product. What does the product do? I want to know what the product does. So Apple is such an easy one to point to because they are so good at this. Like the advertising's great. The products, though, are really phenomenal because they meet people where they are. So even I'm thinking, I'm 40, just turned 46 last week. I'm thinking, you know, it's about time I get an Apple Watch. Meanwhile, plenty of my younger, younger cohorts have it. Plenty of my older cohorts have it. Why do I want an Apple Watch? Well, I'm starting to think that that makes sense for health monitoring. Mm -hmm. That's why I well, got that, one. That, yep. that's it, that, right. <laughs> so that sits there. So so those of us that live kind of in this Gen X cohort, well, we're starting to think about our health more often. We're starting to think about that component of our life because for those of us who are really pro-aging, pro-longevity, we know that if we make the right adjustments now, just basic stuff, we can really add years to our life, but not just years to the end healthy years in the middle. We can actually extend our healthy longevity significantly just by paying attention to the day-to-day -day stuff. And the Apple Watch is one of those things that helps us get there. It's one tool in our arsenal. 
If you show me other tools in our arsenal that 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 they try to market as health tools that look like health tools, hard pass. Hard pass. Not interested. But an Apple Watch is cool. It looks great. Yep. And people don't think about it being a device for older adults. Meanwhile, as you know, certainly from the book, um, men over 65 purchase more Apple products than any other cohort on average. So by definition, Apple is an older adult product line. Yeah. Shocking. Older people like to buy cool things too. That doesn't yeah. really magically go away at some point. I want to touch on the extended nature of midlife, which is a kind of fascinating topic. Again, how I got into this whole thing um, and how that relates to health span, which I think you were really just kind of touching on, because it's not how many years you live, it's your healthy expected lifespan or health span uh, that's going to keep you working, it's going to keep you active. And and by definition, that's going to keep you more of a consumer than if you are uh, only paying a nursing home or you're an invalid or you're just unable to get up off the couch. Um, let's talk a little bit about your definition of, I think you call it middle age plus. Yeah, um, I, call it, I call it middle plus. Like I said, like there is no set term for this group yet. And just like the term teenager kind of evolved, adolescence kind of evolved, um, there have been dozens of words thrown at this group of people. And they're all, you know, <laughs> from the ridiculous to the sublime, the names. And this was one that just felt right to me as somebody in middle age, because I don't see people who are post 65 in those early retirement years um that are active are fit are you know working as much different than me i i just don't we have similar aspirations we have similar goals um we're able to enjoy similar things i don't see them as old my parents i don't see as old um they're obviously, you know, 30 years my senior, 25, 30 years my senior, but they're not old in my mind because we still are doing things together. So this idea of extending these middle age years, these years that you can really enjoy um, is certainly something that's new. And because it's new, I think people are feeling a bit lost in it. Um, they're grasping for purpose right now. They're trying to navigate something that folks have really never experienced before. Um, this idea that, um, you know, at 55, 65, 75 years old, you can still be engaged in work. This has happened in the past, but not quite like this. We've not seen this in our lifetimes. You know, my grandparents were out of work, um, in their sixties. Most of our grandparents were, I can't imagine a world where I'm not working in my sixties. Yeah. But there's all this extra time to to consider. You know, I often say I would much rather live 50 years in great health with a great job, great connections than 80 years with th with 30 years of bad health. Like I just am not right. interested in that. It just doesn't sound fun. And the fun part of life is what keeps us going. The purpose part of life keeps us going. And without that, those components what else is there really? 
I think part of the problem is that healthspan is not evenly distributed, especially in the United States. There are large portions of the country, uh, also the places where uh, the obesity uh, epidemic is at its most acute, where they're effectively dragging down life expectancy in the USA. But is it really meaningful when in certain areas of the country people live 85, more similar to Japan, right? And then in other areas, um, it's, you know, people, most most of the early deaths right now are people under 50 because of things ranging from gun violence to diabetes to heart disease. It's, it's just, there's no United States. We know this politically, we know this culturally, but it really comes to a head when you look at the differences in health span and, and life expectancy. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. And it is really shocking when you look at dense geographies, cities in particular. So I'm in the district of Columbia, Washington, DC. And we have a 25-year longevity gap in the city, 25 years between the longest-lived people and the shortest-lived people. That that uh, tags to race and income in this city, and it t- tags to race and income across the country. In Chicago, it's 30 years. In my hometown of Pittsburgh, my brother lives in a neighborhood called uh, Shadyside, and if you walk 15 minutes east, every minute you walk shaves one year off life expectancy. I mean, think about that. It's it's really shocking the disparity that exists. There are regional disparities too, mind you. So this is not just a question of income or race, although those do play big roles. Um, states that have higher social protection, um, those states that are predominantly coastal, northeast, um, um, some in the Great Lakes, certainly the West Coast, these states way outperform those in the South and those in the West, way outperform. Um, and what can we do about that? Well, there's thinking that some of this is so baked in that because it's a foundational piece of our culture, it was built in from the early days that um it would take generations of investment to turn it around and we don't necessarily have the political will or 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 interest or even capital to do it uh because these are state related issues you know there was a damning statistic that came out earlier this year that not only are gun deaths the number one killer of kids in this country but now in the united states um, a child only has a one in 25 chance of making it to 40. Oh, yeah. One out of 25 children will die before the age of 40, rather. I mean, that's a really shocking Jeez. statistic Yeah, that's for a developed country. And these all contribute to, to longevity. They contribute to the lifespan. So if you look at us against our, our partners um, globally, even our adversaries, the United States is doing pretty bad right now. Our life expectancy at birth is 76 in this country. Sounds pretty good, but it was 79 about three or four years ago. Mm. Our counterparts in Europe 
uh, on average are pushing past 80. China, China is over 80 now. I mean, we are not doing real good, but you're right. It's a regional issue more than anything else. If you live in a northeastern state, if you live in California, um, you're doing pretty good on average. Um, but if you're in the South, yeah, that's that's a tough that's a tough uh, card to be dealt. Yeah. Yep, representing Colorado here. <laughs> <laughs> and you fall somewhere in the middle of all of this, uh, certainly because you've got both the urban centers, but also a pretty pretty wild countryside too. Yeah, the West is a little more like Utah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bradley, one other topic that, you know, I want to hit with you, you know, as, you know, people in certain areas as their health spans are longer and we've kind of talked about how that's going to allow people to work longer as they get older. And we talked about it, you know, so far in the context of people who are working for a company. But the other thing that it's that is going to impact is the opportunities for entrepreneurship. How do you see this trend uh, impacting entrepreneurship and who's able to take advantage of those opportunities? So uh, we will see more entrepreneurship happen. Uh, The question is always how it's defined. So older adults don't think of themselves as entrepreneurs per se. They think of themselves as small business owners. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have to level set with some language, I think, before we can have a real conversation about it. The growth of cottage industry, mom and pops, um, certainly in later life, I do think is growing. You know, I, I think without question within the gig economy, although we don't have good numbers nationally to measure it, um, we do have data from the different platforms. Uh, Uber, you know, has data on who is driving by age, surprising number of people over the age of 50. Um, I think we're going to see more entrepreneurism broadly uh, coming from these cohorts of people later in life. And here's why. Um, The first thing is, is that ageism does still exist in the workplace and people are made redundant um, in large part because of their age or because they cost too much. So they have to survive and getting back into the workplace is sometimes difficult. So when that happens, what do you do? Well, you've got to figure it out on your own. And you either choose a lower paying job or you build something on your own. Um, The second component is, I think, largely, um, and data suggests that this is true, is that older entrepreneurs tend to do better on average than younger entrepreneurs do. Um, Now, these are averages. There's obviously risk in starting a a new company. Uh, Most fail. But on average, older adults tend to do better. They 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 have better know-how. Um, they're less the they're more risk averse, um, and they're able to build maybe not the next unicorn, but certainly the next cockroach. Um, meaning <laughs> that it might not be a billion-dollar company, but it will be a company that lasts for years, if not decades. And I think there's a lot of solace that older adults can take in that. In a number of different industries, there's also this gap in terms of the people working there and the systems that need to be supported. So it wasn't that long ago that this was an analog nation, right? And there were a lot of things that are still within our infrastructure that need expertise around analog devices. There's a whole cohort of people that no longer work in industry that need to service these devices. So there are small businesses that have popped up 
around servicing things like public utilities. Um, certainly legacy computer systems that run just about everything from, you know, airline ticketing to electrical grids. They're still programmed on things like Cobalt. There's a whole generation of people that, that doesn't even necessarily know what Cobalt is. In fact, I, I spoke to a group of, of um, uh, CIOs last year, and I was like to ask, what's your big pain point? And this one guy raised his hand and he said, my last Cobalt engineer left. And I said, oh, well, why is that a problem? He goes, we still have one system that runs on it. So they're flying blind. So there will be the opportunity for these people to bring their services back, likely in the form of consulting. And there are there are budding groups around the country worldwide that are basically corralling these expertises of people into um, these platforms where they can then sell the services more broadly. I think that's a good thing. Um, the nice thing about later life too is that there are perhaps fewer pressures as it relates to healthcare, largely because Medicare is still in place. It's not cheap, but it's it's there and it's guaranteed. Um, and also, you know, uh, a little bit of financial support from Social Security, at least for the time being. Bradley, this has been amazing. And I want to be, uh, you know, cognizant of your time. Do we have time to tackle one more topic before we let yeah. you go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, throughout uh, discussions about workers uh, going longer as older adults, uh, the elimination of, you know, a simplistic three-stage life with retirement being re replaced by all these multiple stages. Uh, you've talked about, other people have talked about that the uh, the buzz phrase, lifelong learning, or as we're calling it, long life learning, um, is actually becoming quite meaningful. I mean, the amount of reskilling, retraining, and just keeping up with the pace, especially with technology is massive. How do you see this as its own segment um, that kind of powers the longevity economy by giving people the training and education they need? Wow. Heavy question for the last one. Um, the There's a couple components to this. So let me just break it down. Um, in a few different parts. The first is that our educational system in this country, in most other countries, is based off of a, a medieval model. It really hasn't been updated in you know 800 or so years. That's problematic. What we have to do as we work longer, live longer, is that we have to make greater investments in ourselves. But businesses also need to start making greater investments in their human capital too. And here's why I say that businesses have to play a role in this. It is because there are fewer and fewer employees to hire year after year. So in the 20th century and in the early part of the 21st century, our global population went from 2 billion people to 8 billion people. We had more workers than we knew what to do with. That is changing rapidly. Workers are no longer disposable. They are assets in which, which employers need to invest in. 
And that comes in continual education, lifelong learning or long life learning, as you say. And by those investments, they're the same type of investments you would make in a physical plant or in your operations, but you have to treat employees with that investment too. The third part is government does need to play a role in this. Now, what does that look like? Government already does play a role in education to some degree. I see the community colleges across this country being the place where a lot of this reskilling happens. Why? Because the infrastructure is already there, the financial support already exists, and it is in the benefit of local governments to pivot towards providing education to their local populations in order to maintain competitiveness for the future. So there are really three elements to this. What what I see is what lifelong learning needs to look like in the coming years and what it likely will look like. An individual contribution, a business contribution, and a government contribution, whether it be federal, state, or local. And yet online education is huge, and that's mostly market-driven. Do you see that playing a role? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, if we're talking about commercial education, I think it's problematic, um, largely because there have been so many cases of uh, fraud, waste, and abuse in the system. Uh, Certainly the for-profit universities, uh, the commercial universities that have gone default, have pushed people into debt, are highly problematic. Um, I don't think it's particularly a good idea for older adults, although it depends on your situation, to go back into university education, certainly the way it's currently financed. Mm -hmm. Um, It's ridiculous to take on $250,000 worth of debt uh, at 50. That's nuts, unless you're going to be guaranteed to get it out and get it out quick. Where I do see uh, learning um, being more natural in the process is that and you certainly see this with younger adults, uh, but I certainly think it's migrated upstream too, is that digital learning platforms like YouTube, like LinkedIn, become much more important to the conversation. Um, But these aren't necessarily for heavy skills per se, they're for episodic skills. Um, When I launched my company, Obviously, you're doing it by a shoestring uh, to get a business off the ground. YouTube became my learning portal. How do I do this? How do I do that? How do I register my LLC? All of these things were, were available there. We just have to be cautious, and I think people should be cautious about what these learning platforms are actually offering um, and what their efficacy is and, and then what the cost is, too, because Costs can get out of hand with education very quickly, um, and they're not necessarily always um, a good ROI. Gotcha. One quick one to close. I see a lot of smart people saying this and that when the labor shortage is over, while other people say we're in a perpetual labor shortage. Your take? Oh, we're not in a perpetual labor shortage per se. We don't have to be. Um, we have plenty of people that could work, um, but we do have to shift our attitudes towards who can and who should work. Like I said, there's a significant cohort of boomers that have retired that maybe don't need to be retired, maybe could be working. What we will experience, 
um, for certainly a generation, if not more, is a leveling off of the labor market. And this period that we're in right now, certainly for the next decade, perhaps for the next 20 years, is going to be tight. It's going to be really tight. Now, we're going to feel it in our pocketbooks. Um, The price of goods will likely go up, but so will wages. Um, We'll also see what I think is a period akin to the 1950s in this country, where there really was a seriously tight labor market. And what happened there? Salaries increased, cost of living and quality of life improved uh, for large swaths of the population. We saw businesses make better investments, greater investments in their employees. Uh, We saw a closing of the wealth gap, which is overall good for society. Um, The narrower that is, the more likely a society is to function well. Um, And we need a little social cohesion these days, as well as economic cohesion, if we're going to get through this period. And this is part of what that readjustment will likely look like. But yeah, if you're a worker now, it's a lot better than being a worker in the 90s. I can guarantee you that. It's a unique period to be alive. And like I say, for the first time, I would say since about 1950, workers have a pretty significant seat at the table, and that will continue to grow for the coming years. Yeah. The book, everybody, it's called The Super Age. Got my copy right here. We highly recommend it. You can learn more about the book and Bradley's work at thesuperage.com. Bradley, is there any place else people should go if they want to connect with you and learn more about these topics? Sure. I mean, I do most of my social on LinkedIn, and you can find me there at Bradley Sherman. That's S-C-H-U-R-M-A-N. Excellent. We will link that up in the show notes. Bradley, this has been even better than I expected. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And uh, continued success in uh, your efforts. Uh, it only seems like you're going to be more in demand. Well, I, I hope that, and I hope the same for you. Thank you. And it's very cool what you guys are doing. Um, very impressive. I'd like to see more people coming into this because this whole space was really a pariah for so long. <laughs> and now it's, I don't know, it's almost enlightened that you know, cool folks are getting into it. (laughs) I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it. (laughs) 